My fellow Americans and all those listening overseas, welcome back to Visiting the Presidents. I'm your host, Joe Fakash, and today we are visiting Ulysses S. Grant. And as I mentioned last episode, he has multiple homes that we'll be talking about today. He's one of our presidents that has several places that he stays, both before and after the president. Before we get going too far, I do want to remind you to be checking out last season's episode. In this case, it's Ulysses Grant and Point Pleasant. We'll hear about his education, his early years, his family life growing up, and how all of that shapes him. And if you recall, some of the things that stick out to me is certainly the juxtaposition of Ulysses Grant being kind of scared of blood and how reluctant he was to go to the West Point Academy. And we'll hear about how that reluctance really kind of finds its way into who he will become as both a general and then president today. So definitely be checking that out. It's always a good thing to kind of review the last season's episode and get your mind refreshed for this season's and a good way to kind of get your bearings on who we'll be talking about. I also do want to be reminding you to be helping support the podcast. I've been very gratified in the last few weeks to see more and more people finding their way to the podcast. It still is a huge effort. Any funds that you can help provide would be very gratefully accepted at this point. I'm in the throes of travels for the summer. I'll be giving you an update on my summer travels here in a few weeks just to give you a sense of all of the different places that I'm going to. But anything that you can do to help either get the word out by liking and subscribing on the social media platforms, helping to write a review on the podcast platform that you're listening to, and then, of course, financial support. And you can find that button on the website and you can find it in the show notes. And all of those funds will be put to great use. Those who've already helped to donate to Visiting the Presidents are Sammy and Tom Fakash, Nancy and Terry Workamp, Debbie and Dennis Fakash, Harvey and Casey Hyman, Connie and Adam Luck, Jim and Catherine Hyman, Gail Rittenhouse, Sean and Liz Jones, Stephen Gilroy, Kurt Dion, AJ Mira, April McKenzie, Matt and Megan Hoekstetler, Caitlin Callahan, Brittany and Keith Mellon, Jim and Laurel Brailer, Eric Engartner, Patricia Argentina, Kara Steiner, Jamie and Ted Wilson, and Andrew Alexander. I also did want to shout out a few people who helped me in this most recent travel in terms of giving me a place to stay, which is gratefully accepted, especially when I'm all over the place. So Candy Davis and her husband, Ben Phelps, who I stayed with when I was in Smithfield, Virginia, along with Candy's twin, Mandy Davis, Seldom Ridge. Candy and Mandy and I were in the same hall my freshman year at Ohio State, and then we stayed friends throughout those four years, and thankfully we've stayed in touch ever since, and so it was really great getting to catch up with them, and I loved being able to stay in their home that dates back to the 1750s, which was incredible just to go around. Uh, Candy's husband is a history teacher, and so he took me around the basement of the house just to see some of the different features of that historical period. I also wanted to shout out my great friend Lana Demers and her boyfriend Craig Hunter, who put me up in Reston, Virginia. It was awesome being able to go in and out of Reston to Washington, D.C. Lana has been a big supporter of the podcast from the jump. Craig is the person whose music you hear at the beginning of the episode, and so big thank you to both of them. Where we had left off with Ulysses, he was a bit of a ne'er-do-well, struggling to keep a job and provide for his family, and starting to ebb towards the Republican Party in terms of his politics. He took a job reluctantly at his father's leather goods store in Galena. You'll remember that he had a real aversion to any kind of animal blood. He worked for his brothers, his younger brothers, which was a big humiliation for him. 
and his Mexican-American war experience started to feel like a real distant memory. He was having to do anything to keep his family afloat, but nothing that was really measuring up to the talent that he had evinced when he was at West Point. In 1860, he voted for Abraham Lincoln, believing that Lincoln could keep the country unified. After his election, and as the war started to look inevitable, Grant requested to recommission from the army, but never hears back. So he started gathering volunteers from his town in Galena, Illinois, and by June was appointed colonel of the 21st Illinois Infantry. Two years later, he would be Brigadier General. In February 1862, he'll have one of his first big victories at Fort Donelson, where he'll capture it for the Union, one of the first major victories for the Union Army overall. And he'll establish his legacy with his command to the defeated Confederate Governor Simon Buckner, where he says, no terms except unconditional and immediate surrender will be accepted which will earn him the nickname Unconditional Surrender Grant. He was promoted to Major General, and two months later will pick up another major victory at Shiloh, starting to push the Confederates out of Tennessee. In June and July of 1863, Grant will lay siege to Vicksburg, Mississippi, blockading the town and nearly starving everyone to death. His victory will cut off the Mississippi River for the Confederacy, effectively ending the fighting or potential for retreat into Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas. Grant was then promoted lieutenant general and then commander of the Union forces by March of 1864. Grant will then begin a long pursuit of Lee through the Wilderness Campaign. By April of 1865, General Grant had Confederate General Robert E. Lee mostly surrounded, and he began communication to set the terms for their surrender. Grant and Lee had both attended West Point, and although they didn't know each other personally, Grant had personal respect and had remained magnanimous. And remember, in the Mexican-American War, he was really scarred by the mistreatment of the Mexican soldiers, and so that'll really assist him in terms of when he decides to set terms. He set an important message in not humiliating the surrendering Confederates or trying to kill them or put them up for treason, but allowed them to return home and take their horses with them. General Grant will receive a hero's welcome, including a brand new home in Galena, which we'll be talking about, a mansion in Philadelphia, and $100,000 raised by New Yorkers. He'll be named General of the Armies, the first commander since George Washington to hold that rank. And he will be named Secretary of War ad interim by President Johnson in 1867. But he'll resign to give the office back to Edwin Stanton, whom President Lincoln had appointed and who Johnson reviled, but Grant had some respect for. In an odd bit of trivia, you might know that Ulysses Grant and his wife Julia were supposed to be in the booth on the night that Abraham Lincoln was shot. And according to legend, Julia Dent was at lunch, and Julia had noticed this group of men who she thought were very like odd-looking and suspicious and gave her a very ill feeling. And then later in the day, when she and her husband begged off from having to sit in the same box with Mary Todd Lincoln, who Julia didn't really get along with, they were sneaking out of Washington to avoid embarrassing the president. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this man rides by the carriage and then turns around whips around and makes eye contact glaring at the grants and later she claimed that that was john wilkes booth we'll turn our attention next to the loves of ulysses grant's life he was not much of a ladies man growing up and it's believed that he had a very kind of functional approach to his sex life where he didn't 
get too emotionally charged <laughs> by the idea of going around with multiple women or sleeping with multiple women. He saw that as like one thing that he had to do in order to have children. And it wasn't something that he derived a lot of pleasure for. And so something just to point out throughout his entire life, Ulysses Grant only had eyes for his wife, Julia. And this is where you can insert your Oh, Julia Bogstent was born in St. Louis at Whitehaven Plantation, one of the homes we'll be talking about, to Colonel Frederick and Ellen Dent. Her father was a plantation owner and merchant, and Julia was raised in finery and attended a private school where she was good at painting and singing. She was always described as friendly, but she also had crossed eyes that caused her to squint, and she was always self-conscious about those eyes. Julia met Ulysses when her brother brought home his West Point classmate. One day they were driving a carriage together near Whitehaven, and the creek was rising. Ulysses was ready to chance it, but Julia was nervous, and she clinged to his arm, saying, I'm going to cling to you no matter what happens. Ulysses crossed to the other side and said, How would you like to cling to me for the rest of your life? Aww. And they were engaged. Neither set of parents approved of this union, as the Dents thought that Ulysses' life as a soldier looked pretty bleak, and the Grants were opposed to anybody who was from a slaveholding family, and that the Dents seemed to prosper from slaveholding and thought nothing of it. They refused to attend the wedding. Julia and Ulysses were engaged for four years before getting married, when Ulysses was 26 and Julia was 22. As Ulysses' stature grew, Julia became more self-conscious about her crossed eyes and looked into having the eyes corrected. But Ulysses found out and told her that he would be really upset at her if she got her eyes corrected. He told her, those are my eyes now, and I don't know that I should love you the same if I don't see those eyes. Again, you can say, aw, here. When Ulysses was fighting in the Civil War, Julia visited him often on the battlefields, buoying his depression and self-doubt. Her family relationship, of course, became strained as her parents were loyal to the Confederacy and resented her husband and his success in fighting their cause. When they become president and first lady, Julia loves entertaining, took very well to the executive mansion, refurbishing the home in her own unique style, which again is going to be in real disrepair with damp carpeting and weak flooring. Julia adds chandeliers and gilded wallpaper and woodwork. And if you ever see images of the East Room, one of the rooms that she'll get credited with redecorating, she adds different pillars and other ornamental features to the home. And I remember when I was younger reading about it and they called it Steamboat Gothic. (laughs) That was the way they described her decorating style. It would have been very in vogue at the time course tastes change and we're pretty horrified by what that would have looked like at this point julia's highlight as first lady will be the wedding that she throws for her daughter in the white house julia's father came to stay in the executive mansion for a time even though he remained disapproving of ulysses and still supported the confederacy for a time julia's father and ulysses father would be staying at the white house together they refused to talk to each other and he would refer to ulysses father as that man over yonder and just nod over in his direction rather than addressing him one-on-one After the presidency, the Grants took a long vacation to Europe, where they're able to escape the talk of scandal, and then they moved to New York. Julia encouraged him to try to run for president again, so much did she love being first lady. After he died, Julia stayed in New York City and even struck up a friendship with Verena Davis, the widow of Jefferson. 
Julia will die in Washington, D.C. in 1902 at the age of 76, and she's buried next to her husband, one of several answers to the question, who is buried in Grant's tomb? I really should underscore the idea that for many of our first ladies that we've been talking about in recent weeks, many of them were reluctant or invalid. And so Julia Dent Grant was a real breath of fresh air and was a return for many to the era of Dolly Madison, where you had somebody who really enjoyed entertaining and was good at it and was well suited to it. And she will be so disappointed when her husband tells her that they have to leave. And you got to think that when juxtaposed against some of these previous people who were battling mental illness or their own infirmity or reluctance to be in the public eye, she really does stand out. And we'll see in the 20th century where we'll have that real kind of dynamic play out as well, where there are going to be some who come to it like a moth to a flame where they love entertaining. And then there's others who have to be kind of pulled into that spotlight. And so Julia Grant does bear mention for that. Ulysses and Julia had three sons and one daughter together. Frederick Dent will follow his father to West Point and then into business. He'll later be appointed to be the ambassador to Austria-Hungary by President Benjamin Harrison, and then will be police commissioner of New York, succeeding Theodore Roosevelt an assistant secretary of war under President William McKinley. Ulysses or Buck will go to Harvard, then to the University of Göttingen, and then Columbia Law, and was his father's personal secretary before becoming assistant U.S. district attorney. He'll practice law and then move to San Diego, where he'll run for the Senate in 1899. It'll be Buck in his business practices, however, who will bring Ulysses into the business venture that will prove his economic ruin, and we'll be talking about that more in season three. We'll also be talking about it a little bit later today when we talk about him having to move into the cottage. Ellen, or Nellie, is the one who gets married in the executive mansion to a wealthy Englishman. They do later get divorced, and then Jesse Root will study engineering at Cornell and move to California where he helps to develop the town of Tijuana. He became a Democrat and was suggested as a presidential candidate in 1908. In terms of being a father, Ulysses is going to be one of the presidents that Joshua Kendall has outlined as a playful dad, where Ulysses and Theodore Roosevelt were very one-on-one with their children and liked the rough and tumble, thought it developed them into growing men. They were also, in both cases, very easy in, in terms of disciplining their children. They weren't big yellers or anything of the sort. And that, of course, has people's criticism during that time period. One of the funny stories that I found was that when Ulysses was working in Galena, he and his toddler Jesse would play this little scene out every day where the little boy would greet Ulysses as he would go up the steps to the home saying, Mr. Do you want to fight? And Ulysses would respond, I am a man of peace, but I will not be hectored by a person of your size. And then they'd get into a wrestling match. And of course, the little kid would win. And that was just something that Ulysses liked to do. When the war goes on, Ulysses will ask for his sons to be able to join him on the front lines. And his oldest son will even accompany him to the White House when he receives his commission. Which is a great memory for anybody to be able to enjoy. But all of the children, other than the daughter, had memories of being in camp and being supported by soldiers and you know, really getting to see their father in this kind of heroism. Maybe few of our other presidents really have an opportunity to show to their children. Another funny story that I came across was when 
Ulysses and Julia would send their kids away to boarding school. And when the kids would complain, you know, want to come home, Julia would say, you know, you should stick it out. And this is something that you've committed to. And Ulysses would say, you need to come home right away. (laughs) Uh, When I went away to Ohio State, I remember how hard it was for the first few weeks and, you know, being the first in my family to go away to college. And my parents never once were like, oh, you should come home now. (laughs) I think it would have been a very different story. Um, Instead, you know, most parents are going to say, like, stick it out. But just to give you an idea of the kind of dad that Ulysses really was. When the Republicans meet in Chicago in 1868, there was no other candidate but Ulysses Grant, who both parties had tried to attract to their ranks. Ulysses was the hero of the Civil War and second only to Abraham Lincoln in the nation's estimation. He'll be nominated unanimously on the first ballot. The Speaker of the House, Schuyler Koufax from Indiana, was chosen to be his running mate. The Republicans mainly endorsed what was called a radical Republican platform. And if you remember in the previous two episodes, I always want to make clear that that's what they called themselves. That was the wing of the Republican Party. The Democratic Party was in complete disarray, and they nominated the chair of the convention, Horatio Seymour, who was serving as the governor of New York. Seymour had kept the state running throughout the Civil War. But he was critical of Abraham Lincoln for his extending his executive powers. Grant and the Republicans knew that Grant had only to keep quiet and would likely win election easily. But there was little known about his life and decision-making ability before the war. Grant's response to being nominated was simply, let us have peace, a tonic that would resonate with the Americans divided for eight years, and it becomes his campaign slogan. Seymour's running mate, Senator Preston Blair, was active on the campaign trail, and he angered many by defending the South. So Seymour was quite distracted trying to undo the damage of his running mate. Grant pledged to continue the reconstruction began by radical Republicans in Congress over Johnson's veto. Republicans spread stories about insanity being in Horatio Seymour's blood, and they tarred all Democrats with what they called the bloody shirt reminding voters that they were the party who brought on the rebellion. Seymour's support was impacted by former Confederates being unable to vote, and Grant would win the Electoral College easily. The popular vote was close, however, even with three states, Virginia, Texas, and Mississippi, being unable to vote. I always show this to my students. You know, Here you have this election right after the Civil War, and you have the big hero of the winning effort, And he barely wins in the popular vote. And so that's going to make them, the Republican Party, go back to their drawing board in terms of how they can shore up support for the next election, eventually leading to the 15th Amendment, where they'll let free African Americans be able to vote. Ulysses Grant's presidency today is best known for its major scandals, the Credit Mobier and the Whiskey Ring being the most infamous. Cabinet corruption up until this point had not really been a thing. And though Grant would not be implicated personally in the scandals, his decision-making in appointing these men, including two of them from back home in Galena as his Secretary of State and Secretary of War, and then his lack of attention will come back to haunt him. He will be the youngest president when he takes the oath of office. He'll be just 46 years old, since surpassed by Theodore Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, But again, his Civil War experience was what was sought to kind of win the day. And here Americans are going to learn in real time that that does have its limitations. He also has this idea of the president as like prime minister, 
And going back to the period before the Civil War, we just had two presidents in Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson who were going to be much more active in terms of expressing their own positions on different pieces of legislation. Whereas Ulysses Grant really wanted to defer in all ways to Congress, letting the people decide through their elected representatives what they wanted to go on. In the Credit Mobier crisis, the company was taking profits from the Union Pacific Railroad, and they sought to bribe members of Congress by selling their shares at a deep reduction in order to avoid investigations. In the whiskey ring, federal officers and distillers were taking the taxes on whiskey and diverting it to their own accounts. In both cases, Grant will try to punish those responsible, but then he'll be horrified at how far up it will go and that it will include people that he trusted. Two gold speculators, Jay Gould and James Fisk, used their connection to Grant's brother-in-law and thus his access to Grant to drive up gold prices and make it appear that they had his endorsement. Grant is also known for reconstruction continuing on his watch, and he had a mixed record in terms of effectiveness, where he'll be responsible for helping to dismantle the Freedmen's Bureau, but also threatened to send federal troops into states that might deny the right to vote for freed Blacks. In my season one episode, I did get a lot of pushback on the idea that I see Grant as kind of a failure in terms of his policies and reconstruction. And one of the biggest things that people will point to is his action regarding the Ku Klux Klan. But even that I consider to be a bit of a question mark. There will be mass arrests that are going to be authorized, particularly in South Carolina, where he'll suspend the writ of habeas corpus to try to route out Ku Klux Klan members and other white terrorists in nine counties in that state. But what it does is force those men to go underground to kind of disperse and keep quiet for a time, but it also gives them the time, the leniency to go and pursue other means. And so we'll see them not disappear, but rather just change their tactics. And because so few of them will actually be prosecuted, there will not be that real recourse against the Ku Klux Klan and these other groups that you might want or expect from a president. And after that, he kind of goes back to looking the other way. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 will give the full and equal enjoyment of the accommodations, advantages, facilities, and privileges of inns, public conveyances of land or water, theaters, and other places of public amusement, but then be ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, and the president does nothing to enforce it. And so that is going to be, again, where I have this kind of mixed view on Ulysses Grant. I do understand he's going through this revitalization. This is his 200th year. And there's all sorts of new information about him. And I'm willing to, to read it. I'm willing to see the complete record. But um, I do think we have to be kind of completely balanced in terms of how we approach the successes and the failures. So on the one hand, he does do more than what he had seen in his predecessor. And certainly, to my mind, a little bit more than what we'll see in next week's feature. But, you know, during a time when we're seeing the complete fortunes of African-Americans being hung in the balance, it is disheartening to see the president be distracted and defer to Congress and let the organizations in the South that are active at that time kind of dictate what the policy is going to be for Southerners. And we'll see the results of that 40 years of real terror that are going to spread out across the southern states and Ulysses Grant 
to my mind, bear some of that responsibility. Grant also deals with the Panic of 1873, which will lead to a five-year-long depression brought on by overextending the railroads, the insurance industry being devastated after the Chicago Fire of 1871, and then other major disasters. Millions will be unemployed and thousands of businesses will fail. And again, this is a time where the president and the executive branch and the federal government really didn't have a means to respond to these economic crises. This just was not what the federal government was there for. And increasingly, people are going to start saying like, well, we need some relief. And again, that's where Ulysses Grant is going to shoulder a lot of the blame at this time when he didn't cause it, but certainly doesn't do anything to respond to it. Grant had stood for re-election before the whiskey ring was revealed, and he was renominated without any opposition. His vice president, Skylar Koufax, was not renominated due to his participation in the Credit Mobier crisis, and he'll be replaced by Senator Henry Wilson of Massachusetts. Grant's opponent in the general election was Horace Greeley, the editor and founder of the New Yorker and the New York Tribune, and an outspoken critic of pacifying the southern states in the pre-war. Anti-Grant Republicans, calling themselves liberal Republicans, will meet and nominate Horace Greeley, and the Democrats are in such disarray that they don't field their own nominee, and they simply endorse Greeley as someone who could defeat Grant. Neither Grant or Greeley inspired any confidence in the American people, and Grant won't campaign, much as he did in 1868, allowing his surrogates to do the campaigning for him will not answer notably to any of the corruption charges. He'll win the election about 56% to 44%, largely still based on his Civil War heroism. Remarkably, when he ends his second term, there are people who are talking about renominating him. And in 1880, he really does think he could be a nominee again. That's how popular he is. It'll later be the answer in those rhymes when Franklin Roosevelt is considering a third term that Washington wouldn't and Grant couldn't, and so Franklin Roosevelt shouldn't. In the case of Ulysses Grant, there will be enough people within his party who say, okay, we do need to turn the page from this guy. Rather than completely repudiating him, however, they do go back to the Civil War hero from Ohio in the next two elections. And so that is something that you can see as a bit of a legacy for Ulysses Grant. I recognize it sounds like I'm being really hard on Ulysses Grant, and it'll likely sound like I'm hard on Rutherford Hayes next week as well. And I do want to at least bear mention that I am trying to you know, evaluate these people for the time period that they're living in, but it is difficult to get too excited about the reconstruction policies or the policies of the presidents who presided over the Jim Crow era. I know there are limits to executive overreach and what the president's able to do, but it's hard to give him a pass to. And so I do want to make that clear. With Grant, it's very clear he was in over his head. He was a guy who was a failure at almost everything else he ever did in his entire life until the Civil War came around. And that is going to pluck him from obscurity, give him a real beautiful moment in our nation's history. And had he not gone into the White House, it's likely that's all we would talk about. We would talk about this great man, a Cincinnatus of our day. Instead, he becomes president and is in over his head. And despite 
well-intentioned and being a good person, you know, that is going to be where we have to be very clear that you can be a good person and a bad president. And we have a lot of those guys who we're talking about in previous weeks and in the weeks to come. In terms of Grant's time in the executive mansion, we already talked about Ulysses and Julia having redecorated the the executive mansion floor, you know, certainly taking their taste into the public rooms on the main floor. They're also going to be as I talked about with Ulysses being one of our youngest presidents, they're going to still have children in the executive mansion. And so that will be something that they have to consider. At this time, there was thought about moving the president from the executive mansion, making that completely a museum and moving them to a different part of Washington, D.C., where they could be like other presidents of other countries where they would be in the countryside in some way and a bit away from the American people. And the president and Julia kind of endorse this plan. You know, certainly any relief from the the situation in the executive mansion, where, where remember you're also sharing your main floor, the floor that you're living on, with your offices, and so people could show up at any hour. Of course, that plan will fail, but it's interesting to see this kind of evolution of the executive mansion in the American people's mind. In William Seale's book on the White House called The President's House, he talks about how this is the first period where people treat the executive mansion or the White House as a historical item in and of itself. Up until this point, it had been seen as the president's home. But now it's being seen as the home of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and Abraham Lincoln. And so more and more people are starting to look at the executive mansion, not just as the residence of their current occupant, but as this place that you can access other parts of history. And so that does change our kind of understanding of the home. The Grants entertained quite lavishly, and that's one of the main reasons that Julia has a hard time leaving, where they will have much more parties than previous occupants. Again, he is much more in it for the ceremonial position that he thought the president had. One of the interesting stories about the occupying the executive mansion is every evening they would go into the red room and people who had a certain position in Washington could show up and be led into the red room and get to talk to the president and first lady. On Saturdays, they would receive people and they would have um, all of the Washington show up and go through the home. And this was the first time that they opened up the executive mansion to strangers on the street. But if you came between 10 and 3, you would be shown into the state floor and you'd be able to look around. Of course, there are people who were souvenir hunters and were picking at the walls and trying to steal the different pieces off the chandelier. But that was going to happen. You know, certainly I think our decorum has changed in some respects where that's concerned. Interestingly enough, the Grants were open to entertaining freed African-Americans. Should they show up, they told their butlers, anybody who is well-dressed to come into the White House is to be permitted to come in. It isn't too surprising that no freed Blacks took them up on this offer. There really wasn't a welcome mat that had been laid out in previous administrations, nor would there be any welcome mat laid out in subsequent ones, to be clear. But that the Grants were open to that opportunity is something about the Grants that I think bears mention. We will next turn our attention to the different homes. Ulysses Grant has three preserved homes that are associated with him. The first is the Dent home outside of St. Louis, known as Whitehaven. This is the home where Julia was born. 
where Ulysses will meet Julia and where they'll live prior to his moving to Galena. From the National Park Service website, the Whitehaven estate was built between 1812 and 1816 and was the childhood home of Julia Dent Grant. Ulysses met Julia at Whitehaven and they fell in love, later marrying in 1848. After serving in the U.S. Army, Grant resigned his commission and decided to try his hand at farming at Whitehaven. From 1854 to 1859, the Grant and Dent families, along with enslaved African-American laborers, will live and work at Whitehaven. Grant purchased the property after the Civil War and hired a caretaker to live at the main house and manage the farms. The Grants considered retiring to Whitehaven at some point in time and continued to visit Whitehaven on a periodic basis after the Civil War. Their last visit to the home together was in 1883, and they owned the property until a few months before Ulysses died in July of 1885. So a few things there. Certainly the one that stands out is this idea of there being African-American laborers. Sometimes you see Grant referred to as a slaveholder, and there is some conjecture about that. He himself did not own the slaves, and it's very clear that his father-in-law knew that Ulysses would free them if he gave the slave or deeded the slave to Ulysses. And so that is a point of distinction among Grant individuals. And then the idea of them wanting to live in St. Louis or live at Whitehaven after their time in the presidency, it certainly was one of those options. But the idea that it was very hard for them to get to in later years is going to be one of the things that kind of drives them away. Now, I visited Whitehaven along with my friend Stephanie Gaskell. We went in May of 2016. This was right when I had first started visiting presidential sites. And Stephanie and my friend Lana Demers were both in St. Louis quite frequently. And so, of course, I was going to look to see if there were any presidential sites in the area. We went out to Whitehaven where it has this very distinctive green color, which they're very defensive about. They say this was very fashionable at the time, believe it or not. And it is hard to believe when you go close. The one thing that stands out to me about Whitehaven is just that there wasn't a whole lot of furnishings there. The grant furnishings are in other repositories or in other places right now. And so it was pretty quick to go through the home. It's a normal home from that time period, a farmhouse. They do have an extensive museum and gift shop, but in terms of the items within the home. So much of it is period appropriate, if not grant particular items. And so that was something that really stood out to me about that. I do want to revisit at some point, you know, I was still very early on in terms of my thinking about or trying to interpret these presidential sites. So I do think it's worth a revisit. The second home, and the one that is highlighted in the title today, is the home in Galena, Illinois. Ulysses and Julia had lived there right before the Civil War, where he was working at his father's tannery, and the city of Galena will purchase this new Italianate mansion at the top of the hill overlooking the town as a tribute to Ulysses' service when the war is over. The brick house had been built in 1860 for the former city clerk Alexander Jackson. The house had covered porches and a large parlor and study, a dining room, and several bedrooms upstairs for the sprawling Grant family. The Grants never truly lived in the home after the war, since they will very quickly be moving to Washington when he is serving as commanding general, and the home will then be treated more as a refuge for the rest of his life, with caretakers living in it and keeping it clean and fashionable for when they do come home to visit. The Grants gave the home back two years before he died, with the express intent to preserve the home as a tribute to Grant and 
keep it in the same condition. The costs were so high that the state of Illinois then took over stewardship in 1931, and they restored the home throughout the 1950s to be open to the public, with most of the Victorian furniture still in place, where it's now operated by the state of Illinois. What was remarkable to me about visiting, and I did this last summer, August of 2021, on my way back to Arizona, what was really remarkable is they don't have any scheduled tours. They just are running on a continuing basis every 15 minutes. And so you show up and then within the next 15 minutes, there will be a guide that comes out and says, time to go inside. And they lead you from room to room. You're in and out in a pretty quick clip. The home is pretty cool. When you look at the images on the website, you'll see the furnishings are very much a lot of the gifts that the grants received. And so you get a good sense of first and foremost, what esteem the grants were held in, but then also the care that the people of Galena have taken in terms of preserving this home, where they wanted it to be a showpiece for the grants. They wanted it to be as comfortable as possible and as accommodating as possible. And so it really is both a private home for the grants, but then also a public space for him to receive all of these guests that they were anticipating that the grants would come into contact with in his years after the presidency. So it is pretty remarkable to see all of the different paintings on the walls. You have the Peacemaker painting that shows Grant meeting with William Tecumseh Sherman and President Lincoln. And then you have paintings of the president and his wife in various places throughout the house. A really cool library that you can access from both directions. Like I said, they do lead you through at a pretty quick pace, but I was able to get a lot of the good photos of the site, and it did look really comfortable if this was opened as a bed and breakfast. It would be super nice to stay in, and you do kind of wonder if the Grants didn't rethink this in their years after the business venture fell through, that this would have been a nice place to go and hang out where the people would have been willing to put up with the Grants and keep them in pretty posh surroundings, regardless of the economic shortcomings. One other notable feature is that it is free to access the home regardless of when you visit. And that was one of the kind of stipulations in this arrangement. And so you did, do get to go in and out of the house and get to see everything there. One other cool feature is they did have a mini kind of museum in the back of the house where they had other features of the home. They are also redoing the museum for the city of Galena that is associated with this. And so I would like to visit to see that. The thing that was really notable on this trip was that they had these rocks that were painted of the presidents and first ladies from our entire history. And so I did think that that was really cool. I should put a picture of that on the website. There is another home that is associated with the grant. And I found this through a blog called The Daytonian in Manhattan, where he finds the lost grant home in Manhattan when the grants are in the business venture after leaving Galena, after their European tour, and again, we'll be talking about his post-presidency in season three, where there is a lot of stuff that will come out about Grant. He will suffer this huge economic failure and then find out that he is diagnosed with cancer and go completely into hyper mode in terms of getting his book written. And so I might more talk about this home when we talk in season three about the decline of Ulysses Grant, but he lives in this home on 66th Street between 5th and Madison Avenue. And if you're thinking geographically of Manhattan, it's a really nice area. 
And the home is going to be, again, a very beautiful home for the Grants to be able to receive all of these different people. And most had believed as a former president and then with his various business ventures that he was able to support himself. But as time goes along and his son gets him in this really shady dealing, it becomes very clear that the Grants can't afford it at all. Here's where they displayed all of the different items that Grant received from different cities and different countries when he goes on that European tour. And it's going to be in this house where he is going to be diagnosed with cancer and know that he has very limited time. I'll link to the article. It's a pretty interesting read of the Grant's time in this house, him having to kind of shuffle people sending him money to help him repay some of his debts, his friend Samuel Clemens or Mark Twain encouraging him to start writing his memoirs to kind of support his wife, and then the efforts people made to kind of keep them in good standing in that community where they were surrounded by the Vanderbilts and the Astors. But the home was torn down, and so there is a different building on that site, but I'll link to that on the website, and so definitely check that one out. The third home is the home where Grant will die. And again, we'll talk more about his death in season three. And this is called Grant Cottage at Mount McGregor, where he is going to live for the last month of his life. The cottage is at the top of the mountain where the air was clear and the view was perfect. There was a hotel called Balmoral Hotel right next door. And the owner shamelessly claimed that he was thinking of the publicity Grant's imminent death might provide for the hotel. One room in the cottage was devoted to his editing for his memoirs, while another was for Grant to do much of the writing in as much comfort as he could maintain, given his condition. The bedroom had a chair where Grant needed to sleep upright for fear of choking. His asking to lay down signaled the end was near to his family. As the owner speculated, this will cause thousands to flock to the mountaintop, including many veterans, and the home will be preserved exactly as it was the day that Grant died, being open to the public in 1890. The state of New York was no longer able to take care of the cottage, and so the friends of Grant Cottage took over operations in 1989. In the last year, we have seen it recognized as a National Historic Park, and so it is going to be maintained going forward in that capacity. What's remarkable about this place is that they do keep it the exact way as though Grant had just left. And so in the one room, you get these two chairs that are facing each other where Grant would have been able to sit upright and have his legs propped up. They also notably have this jar of water with pieces of cocaine at the bottom was about the only thing that was really soothing to him as he is nearing the end. And then in the main room where he will pass away, they have the bed preserved exactly as he was with the clock exactly where it was when he died. And then a lot of the funeral flowers preserved on the other side of the room. They're not in great shape, but you do get the sense for just how loved he was. And again, how much the people of this area really wanted to support and preserve the memory of Ulysses Grant in his dying days. And so that is all very prominent up there. It is gorgeous at the top of that mountain. I always remarked that it made me feel like I was in a Claritin ad where everything looks so blue and green. You can see all the way to Vermont from the top of the mountain. And so you get a good sense of why it would have been so attractive. They have a spot preserved where Grant took his last view of the valley the day before he died. And so you do get a sense of why it would have been really attractive at that time. 
And then what would have drawn people up there for the hotel, for the sanitarium that will eventually come in that place. And again, we will get into the details of Grant's demise and the aftermath of his death. But again, I would be remiss not to talk about this home that is associated with Grant. When you look up Grant home, that'll be one of three sites that comes up. Like I said, the Whitehaven home where he lives with Julia before the Civil War. Galena, right before the Civil War, and and the home that was given to them after, and then again, the home that he'll die in. And so, again, I think all three are different sites that you would probably want to visit at some point. So I've told you about my experiences. Again, you'll want to be checking the websites for the sites in terms of their operation days. I know with Grant's Cottage, it is seasonal, and so they cut off uh, access to the cottage in October, but they do say like if there are special arrangements, they will be available. Um, with Galena, it's operating year round, and so uh, definitely again be checking out the website for those. I did have one other home <laughs> that I'd be remiss to not mention, and this was his home in Long Beach, New Jersey. What the, they called the cottage at the time, where it's twenty eight rooms and had two main floors and a basement. The Grants would retreat to the Jersey Shore from July through September each year, leaving some in both parties to complain about the absent president, even launching an investigation at one point into his expenses and the legitimacy of any decisions being made while he's on vacation. Grant would cite his predecessors, and the investigation eventually stalled out, leading most of his successors through President Wilson to go to the Jersey Shore as well and plan their trips there. Of course, today we don't really think about the president's going on vacation as being a matter of grave concern. We're pretty used to the idea of presidents needing to have their own time away. And so in the summers, you can think about each of our presidents in recent years with places that they would go to retreat. But um, another pretty interesting site for Ulysses Grant there. So that's where we'll leave off with this episode of Ulysses Grant and all of his different spots. I Definitely recommend each one of them. I thought I got something different from each one. I'm looking forward to revisiting certainly the Whitehaven home, but I would definitely go back up to the cottage if I'm in that area because it was so beautiful. And I am interested to see once the national parks take over the site, just how that interpretation might change. But pretty interesting sites there as well. Next week, we will be getting into Rutherford Hayes and his iconic home in Fremont called Spiegel Grove. And his will be the first presidential home that will also have a presidential library right next door. So that will make it stick out in memory, as well as the fact that I have a personal connection. You'll hear all about my time at the Rutherford Hayes home next week when we visit Rutherford Hayes and Spiegel Grove. As always, you'll want to be checking out the website. You'll have recommended readings, links to other readings, especially this week where I linked to the Daytonian and Manhattan article on the Grant home in New York City. But then you can see all these other historic images, my own photos from the different sites that I visited, as well as a map. You have links to other books. For Ulysses Grant, the books that I am definitely recommending, the first is, of course, the Ron Chernow book, just called Grant, which is very fascinating and, again, I think a pretty balanced approach to Ulysses Grant. There's the personal memoirs of Ulysses Grant that he works on. It goes up right until the end of the Civil War, and so you don't get too much into his presidency. He is very favorable, of course, to his own position, but even now, the book is held up as one of the best accounts of strategizing for the military. They still hold it in pretty high esteem. 
you have H.W. Brands, a historian you've heard me in previous weeks recommend, but his book called The Man Who Saved the Union, Ulysses Grant in War and Peace, and then American Ulysses, A Life of Ulysses Grant from Ronald C. White. All season, I've been giving you content from The Complete Book of the U.S. Presidents by William D. Gregorio, Away from the White House, Homes of the Presidents, Houses of the Presidents, and then I also have uh, been supplementing that with The President's House from William Seale and then Joshua Kendall's First Dads. And all of those are very highly recommended and give you some real information as well as some information from kind of behind the scenes that I think is always interesting to kind of uh, sprinkle throughout. As always, you can be helping to support the podcast through liking and subscribing on the various social media platforms, liking the social media content, sharing whatever you're able to, but sharing the episode, writing a review, I can't beg you enough to do that, as well as if you can, please consider supporting financially. All of that money will be going to great use here in the weeks to come. I'm planning another jaunt into New York and New England, and so any money will be greatly appreciated. As always, I am appreciative of the support that I've had to date, and I'm appreciating the increased content that more and more people are being able to access from the visiting the presidents. With that, I look forward to seeing you out there on the road as we continue to visit the presidents. See ya!